0: Two Barclays analysts, one hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flipside. The flip side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The flip side. I'm Jeff Melly, the head of research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Marie Fryer, the global head of cross-asset ESG research. Thanks for joining me, Marie.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: Today, we're going to talk about the state of ESG investing, particularly here in the US, because of some recent market and political volatility. I think this is a great time to raise this topic.
1: I agree. And I've actually been quite encouraged by recent political and regulatory developments, especially those that have incorporated ESG themes and concerns with regards to climate. I think that these developments show that the ESG movement is gaining momentum and is actually starting to have an effect also on companies, in part through integration into the formal frameworks, our systems of rules that determine the operating environment.
0: Well, Marie, I also see resistance building to this movement, as you call it, and I'm not sure what the net effect will be. But I do think that this resistance is going to become more entrenched as the trade-offs associated with ESG become more apparent. I suspect that a lot of the recent momentum will prove to be short-lived.
1: Well, it's probably worth level setting a bit up front. So as we know, ESG is a framework that is designed to consider environmental, social, and governance issues as part of investment analysis to gain a fuller understanding of a company. And risks associated with these themes are often consolidated into ESG scores or ratings. And there are third-party providers of these, and many investors create their own as well. And these ESG ratings measure financially relevant sector-specific ESG risks a company is exposed to. And in tandem, ESG investors are increasingly also considering the environmental or society impact that a company is in turn having through its economic activity, what we call dual materiality.
0: Now, the idea of ESG investing is that you consider these issues when structuring a portfolio. And I think an important question is, to what end do you consider these issues? And I would summarize the goal as trying to influence companies to change their business practices. So if investment dollars flow more easily to companies that better manage the ESG risks, uh, particularly those that are relevant to society, such as say, reducing their carbon footprint, then companies will make changes to better attract those investment dollars.
1: You know, Jeff, interestingly, in Europe, this is not really a controversial concept or topic. Virtually any asset manager needs to have an approach to ESG in order to attract or retain AUM. It's really a commercial necessity now. And I'd say this reflects a fundamental shift in the expectations from many end investors. So they want their funds invested in a way that takes into consideration these factors, not least because they believe it will lead to higher returns.
0: You know This has been slower to catch on in the US, Marie, and in part because of skepticism about that last point that you just made, that this framework of investing will lead to higher returns rather than lower returns. I'm skeptical about that myself. I don't think investors need a new framework to take seriously issues that are truly financially relevant and will lead to better returns. That's what they do already. If you actually convince companies to incur costs or limit revenues in order to improve their ESG score though, doesn't that almost by definition actually reduce returns?
1: We can, we can probably debate the benefits or motivation to improve ESG scores, presumably not as an end in itself, but, but investors and companies have a proactive role to play in considering changing information, new information, and anticipating resulting changes in their operating environment.
0: Well, I agree with that sentiment, Marie. However, I think that considering changing information or anticipating changes to an operating environment is really just another way of saying running a business. I'm not sure what's different here.
1: Yeah, or maybe even running a business well, right? Um, but, But let me try to put it another way. I do think there's a new awareness of important costs that's rising. Call it growing, I don't know, ESG cost consciousness. And I don't think that it's inflating a company's core responsibilities if they are considering these potential business risks or opportunities in that context. So hopefully evolving and innovating around this too. And perhaps we should consider it the latest iteration of Schumpeter's creative destruction. But to me, that isn't woke, that is about understanding changing parameters and a clear case of change management. So for instance, consider the latest scientific knowledge about the potentially irreversible damage caused by microplastics to our food supply chain or of burning fossil fuels to our climate, and hence undisputable costs that certain business activities are giving rise to and costs that are increasingly being quantified, pecuniary costs.
0: Well, Marie, I agree that considering the changing business and regulatory environment is important, although again, I think companies were largely already doing that. As an example, a US company that, say, operated for the last 50 years by ignoring the impact of carbon emissions on climate would be, I think, considered to quite accurately have foreseen the inability of the US to address carbon pollution, uh, such as, for example, using a carbon tax. I think that in the ESG framework, You would hold companies to a higher account than that. You would actually ask the company to take responsibility for its its carbon footprint, for example, and impose a cost by requiring them to do more than what is strictly necessary to maximize shareholder value, given a realistic assessment of how the business landscape is going to evolve.
1: Perhaps there there is a question of time horizons uh, there as well, but it is this tension, of course, around ESG that we're seeing in the US in particular, and in a market that is philosophically deeply committed to shareholder primacy leads to some resistance, if positioned that way, right, that juxtaposing between ESG and returns.
0: I, I agree, and I, I think It might be easy to scoff at this resistance, but the notion that corporations should maximize shareholder value has a lot going for it, which I discussed in episode 44 of the flip side. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that corporations should ignore the environment, it's not suggesting that. It means instead that society should set the rules by which companies operate to ensure a level playing field. So we don't leave it up to individual CEOs to tell us what levels of pollution are acceptable. The government, regulators should step in, set uniform standards and then corporations have to follow those rules, but otherwise maximize profits.
1: I I do agree. And of course, we do need policymakers and regulators to ultimately play that role of arbitrator, right, and adapt those formal frameworks governing businesses, not least because we need those costs to be considered consistently and also to overcome all the hurdles like misaligned time horizons. But take one more recent uh, development, the new SEC proposal on climate-related disclosures.
0: Yeah, that proposal was released earlier this year It would require companies to disclose various aspects of their carbon footprint. I think uh, aspects of this proposal are almost surely going to be challenged. It's in comment period now. Um, I think the question will be if the SEC has the statutory authority to take such a step.
1: Yes, that's fair and and I'm sure will be debated, Um, but I would argue that forcing or formalising climate disclosures is in itself a win for ESG investing. So better information and transparency, while itself obviously change nothing, but can help inform and enable different outcomes, including corporate behaviour. So quantifying these things always helps and providing investors with comparable information in particular will be so powerful. Another interesting thing to me about the proposal was actually the rules around net zero commitments. So the proposal saying that if a company makes a net zero commitment, meaning that it is committed to having a net zero carbon footprint in a predetermined time in the future, often many years out, then the company must also disclose the steps it is taking to meet that commitment. That's really key to me. That is where I think the hard work needs to be done. So developing ambitious but realistic transition plans not least as a sort of bulkhead against ideological approaches, but instead really enabling well-considered practical ways forward.
0: You know, Marie, these net zero commitments, or at least some of them anyway, seem somewhat cynical to me. Companies, I think at times, make them to mollify activists that can include activist shareholders, but also, you know, NGOs or other types of activists. Um, I think that many of these commitments are vague. They can be difficult to enforce or monitor. And they're also at times extremely long dated even out 30 years into the future
1: yes true but exactly that's why i think this rule is so interesting so if a company voluntarily makes an zero commitment which will surely have financial implications for it then i think it's reasonable that investors and other stakeholders will want and need to monitor it and progress and then the regulator steps in and says, well, hold on, if you're going to make these important commitments, then you will need to disclose progress, related initiatives, um, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, I do see the point on that. And I think now you basically are determining the guardrails. You're setting a level playing field around net zero, so to speak. Um, of course, it still remains to be determined if the SEC can make these rules. But I am sympathetic to the notion that a company is not forced to make a net zero commitment. But once it does, it should have to be transparent about it.
1: Yeah, right. Like a nice way to retain the basic structure and understanding of corporate responsibilities, but adapt the guardrails, as you say.
0: It could be that. Or it could be a lesson for companies. Don't make these commitments in the first place. I mentioned earlier that there's some resistance building to ESG. And um, that resistance is, is based on the very notion that companies should be taking positions on these types of issues in the first place. So some recent examples. Florida recently required that its pension assets be invested in a manner designed to maximize returns without any consideration of ESG. They're actually explicitly prohibiting the use of ESG scores in their investment process.
1: In, indeed, um, I'm, I'm sure you would appreciate it. I've been following that very closely, but to me it ignores the very real societal environmental issues that ESG investing can help to address, um, but also doesn't attempt to be part of a solution to create a more balanced framework either.
0: Well, you know, Florida isn't alone. So a number of other states have recently taken steps to limit the way they do business with banks that they feel are taking inappropriate positions on social or environmental issues. Um, There's also Blake Masters, who's a candidate for U.S. Senate from Arizona, who has suggested banning ESG scores, um, in part because he believes that they are, quote, un-American. Now, the commentary justifying a lot of these actions really makes a point about saying that that these organizations or individuals don't want corporate America dictating terms to citizens on issues that are really appropriately left to governments to address.
1: If I may, let me come back to your first point, that companies shouldn't be taking positions on these types of issues. I think that's where I don't agree. But I do think it really matters what motivates that position. So for example, undue political pressure without actually changing the legal basis, the guardrails, that doesn't seem right and neither should it be for ideological reasons or to, to do good, to be good, arguably. But they may be doing it for practical, completely rational reasons, because either they anticipate policy makers, regulators um, taking action um, and anticipating that change, or to avoid reputational damage as they see public opinion changing and, and sort of, you know, maybe um, anticipating public outrage, or broadly because they are foreseeing and embracing change in a sort of corporate context. And so I would push back on this notion that considering ESG issues or using ESG scores necessarily requires some great sacrifice from shareholders. I mean, here's a fact. There is a lot of pressure on companies from a very large set of stakeholders to reform their business practices in this type of context.
0: Well, that is true. and We've even seen some activists take ownership positions in companies' stock in order to have a voice at things like their annual meetings so that they can actually try to influence policy directly as an owner.
1: Indeed. So, so whether it's reputation or demands from suppliers or customers or employees, scrutiny from activists, as you mentioned, can all affect um, their business activities and the bottom line. So it might sound self-fulfilling, but if ESG issues are elevated to the point where they actually affect shareholders, then arguably shareholder value and ESG are not really in tension.
0: Well, it is a bit circular. Uh, and self-fulfilling, I think. But I also think what you're saying is accurate. So what you're saying is that the pressure from various stakeholders can itself have an influence on operating performance, and therefore companies need to take it into account. You know, I I think we are hearing uh, from some prominent asset managers who are early advocates of ESG that these issues are a path towards long-term value, so to speak, and not in conflict with shareholders. Now, what I would say, though, is that the same logic applies to the resistance that's building to ESG? How so? Well, I think it's just symm- symmetrical in a sense. If the resistance to ESG rises sufficiently, that that affects the bottom line. So, for example, because certain types of investors will not participate in your share, uh, you know, your share offerings or in your bond offerings, or because certain potential customers won't do business with you because of the types of positions you're taking on ESG then that could actually influence companies in the exact opposite direction and get them to be more, more reluctant to take these sorts of positions or make these sorts of changes. I'm not really sure that a shouting match over corporate purpose is maybe the greatest the greatest thing for our economy at this point.
1: That is, a, that is a very good point. And navigating the increasingly polarized and politicized debate around many of these issues in the U.S is proving challenging, both for large investors and corporates. And I suspect they'll have to keep a much closer eye on, on state-level regulation policy, right? given how, how much that's bifurcating. But here's another fact. At a federal level, we are seeing uh, new rules and um, with a lot of tangencies to ESG. And of course, a key example is the Inflation Reduction Act, which seeks to achieve 40% emissions reduction by 2030 relative to 2005 levels, which implies a reduction of 3% per year from 2021 to 30. That's approximately $370 billion allocated toward climate and energy. And the IRA is the US's largest investment in climate change mitigation adaptation in history, and does represent a meaningful progress towards making good on the US's climate commitments. It does, of course, involve tax credits and grants, but also things like methane fees.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Actually, I think that this highlights, I think, some of the short-sightedness around the critique of things like ESG scores, because regardless of your investment mandate, whether it includes ESG or not, these types of bills, spending uh, proposals, the SEC rules will have an effect on companies' performance. And analysts need to understand those effects. Investors need to account for them in their portfolio construction. And I feel like the ESG framework, again, regardless of your investment mandate, the framework is an extremely convenient tool for analyzing these sorts of issues it's a great lens if you will to put into contrast even at times conflict between e and s and g scores which we don't necessarily all push in the same direction um, but being able to balance those effects and understand how it's going to affect companies bottom line
1: right totally agree and so perhaps um that's the synthesis of our argument that regardless of whether you label it esg or not certain topics for certain sectors and companies are increasingly important um and therefore important to the, both the corporates and the investors alike.
0: I, I agree with that. Uh, that's a good synthesis, and, a, and it's also a very good mission statement for our overall ESG research effort. Well, thanks for joining me, Marie. Clients can get access to our integrated coverage of this fast-moving topic by subscribing to the hashtag ESG Transition, available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/slash CIB.